Thousands of rockets rain down on Israel as divisions in America become more apparent. We'll speak to William Daroff, Chief Executive Officer of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organization, who's on the ground in Israel. Also joining us this week, Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, the delegate from the United States Virgin Islands, to talk about her perspective on the conflict, the state of black Jewish relations, and what it's like being a delegate. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 14 of Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, a lot going on in Israel. We prayed for peace in our last episode. Uh, we have not gotten it yet. Uh, some uh, hope on the horizon, perhaps, of a ceasefire, but still thousands of rockets raining down on Israel from Hamas. Uh, we also see some divisions opening up on the left flank uh, inside the Democratic Party. Uh, some letters, uh, 28 senators in the Senate uh, sending a letter uh, urging an immediate ceasefire. Uh, we saw Nancy Pelosi also uh, call for a ceasefire a little bit more concerningly. We saw the Democratic chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Greg Meeks, uh, call for suspension of an arms sale to Israel, then reverse that, uh, of course. Uh, a, a lot going on here. Jared, your, your initial thoughts before we uh, bring William on to get his. Well, I would just, on the first and second point, uh, people calling for an immediate ceasefire does not make them unsympathetic to the Israeli cause here. Uh, a ceasefire would also cause call for uh, immediate cessation of rockets raining down into Israel from Hamas. So, so the idea that those who are calling for a ceasefire, Democrat or otherwise, are somehow anti-Israel for doing so, I think uh, I, I don't buy it. Well, obviously, the question is, when you go into their letter, do they have an immediate understanding that you have one side that's a foreign terrorist organization that's raining rockets down that could stop any time, and one side that is responding by defending its citizens against that Iran-sponsored terrorist organization? Uh, but I hear you. We do want peace. Uh, we don't want to see violence. No, one's, no one wants to see people die on either side. But there's a danger in deciding to oversimplify the conflict, blame both sides, uh, hide behind, quote unquote, even handedness, uh, and then say, oh, we just want both sides to stop fighting. Fair enough. Okay, William Daroff, CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, is in Israel, joining us now to talk more about what's going on. William, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Rich. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm a longtime listener, first-time guest. William, first of all, uh, obviously a lot going on. Uh, you're in Israel. Can you tell us the mood on the ground this week as the rocket attacks have dragged on? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been remarkable uh, being here in Tel Aviv. Uh, we flew in on uh, Sunday. It was difficult to get here. Had three different flights uh, canceled, but then uh, came in on the old reliable El Al. Uh, and arrived. And it uh, it's sort of it's a mix. Uh, Israel is amazingly resilient uh, where they have been through. Israelis have been through conflicts and crisis uh, on, a, on a monthly, daily, weekly basis. And, and they figure it out. Um, the when I cleared the quarantine, there's a quarantine here upon arrival. And when I cleared the quarantine after my uh, serology test came back, showing that I had the vaccine, um, I went for a run uh, along the beach uh, here in Tel Aviv. And it was just like uh, any other uh, beach day in Tel Aviv. There were 
women wearing bathing suits you could barely see, men wearing bathing suits you could barely see, uh, playing that uh, crazy game they play on the beach with the uh, those boomerang-type things that hit people, uh, dogs running. Uh, it was just like a, a normal day on the beach, uh, notwithstanding the fact that 24 hours before, you could see images of towels on the beach as people ran uh, from the Tel Aviv beach to get into bomb shelters in the midst of it. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, it's business as usual. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I know that uh, many are on edge, particularly in the south, uh, in Ashkelon, Ashdod, and in the communities that, that uh, are on the sleeves surrounding Gaza, where there have been uh, rocket attacks uh, on a daily basis. Here in Tel Aviv, thank God, there has not been a rocket attack uh, since Saturday. Um, so uh, it's been uh, five days or so since the last rocket attack. Uh, but I'll tell you, it's, it's affected me in a way that, uh, that, that I have never been before, where you know, when you're, we have about four minutes uh, from the time we hear a siren till we get to the bomb shelter uh, in the basement of the building that we're staying in. And so taking a shower uh, is perilous. Uh, you know, the, every minute that you're in there, every second that you're in there, you know, wet, uh, soap-filled uh, is uh, is a minute or a second that's keeping you from getting down the steps, and it's it's very scary and it's very nerve-wracking, and it really connects me, I think, to a, a part of the uh, Israeli uh, mentality um, that I had just never been a part of before, which is just the sort of immediate realization and recognition that at any moment uh, rockets might be coming down on you, your life may be in danger, and you have to find a place. Uh, to secure yourself. And it is uh, unbelievable the way that uh, Israelis are resilient around it, but also unbelievable that the international community looks on at this and and is basically ignoring the fact that Hamas is indiscriminately firing upon civilians, uh, or certainly to the extent they're not ignoring it, uh, they're not uh, giving it the right size concern that they should, uh, nor the concern that they would have uh, were it to happen to just about any other country in the world. So William, Speaking to that, and speaking to that maybe a little bit closer to home, we've seen more conversation this go-round within the United States about how people feel about this conflict, particularly there are elements of the Democratic Party, uh, maybe, you know, and, and maybe you could talk about some of the reasons why we're seeing this conversation like we've never seen it before, and what should the pro-Israel community be doing about it? So it absolutely, there is a lot of noise out there. I think that a lot of it is amplified by social media. Uh, the uh, social media atmosphere in 2014, the last time there was a, a big Gaza uh, event, uh, was not as robust as it is now. Uh, and so we see on social media uh, a great deal of attacks on Israel, uh, total distortions of the facts uh, by celebrities and other influencers, and certainly by the news media uh, who are pushing one narrative out there without uh, really, in, in large respect, taking account of uh, of Israel's narrative. Uh, I think as a uh, pro-Israel community, we should be grateful uh, for the support of President Biden, uh, who has uh, been steadfast in recognizing and stating over and over again that Israel has a right to defend herself, that these indiscriminate attacks by a terrorist organization uh, should not be uh, countenanced. Uh, and uh, to date has has, uh, pushed back on the United Nations Security Council, I think four times now, uh, on statements and resolutions uh, that would be uh, condemning Israel, uh, and continues to give support at a time when there are very, very few world leaders who are doing so. And so I I give a big thumbs up to President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken uh, for standing with Israel despite uh, the pressures from the international community, uh, the human rights community, 
Uh, and as uh, as you uh, implied uh, or inferred, Jared, from uh, parts of the uh, progressive community in the left wing of the Democratic Party. So we have like headlines from this past week. U.S. House speeches on Gaza expose growing rift in Democratic Party on Israel. We obviously saw the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, maybe even more concerningly, you know, make an announcement originally that he was going to try to hold up an arms sale from the Biden administration to Israel. He's, he's since reversed that position under some backlash. Are you worried, you know, from an organized Jewish community perspective, that this is not just fringe anymore, that it is getting some legs in mainstream offices on Capitol Hill? I am certainly worried. Uh, I get paid to worry uh, on a daily basis about uh, American support uh, for a strong U.S. as a relationship. Um, And for sure, a number of the statements that have come out uh, from uh, friends of Israel uh, who are uh, a little bit more edgy uh, than they would otherwise be are concerning. But I'm reminded of the fact that just a couple months ago, um, three quarters of the uh, of Congress came out opposed to any sort of conditioned aid uh, for Israel, uh, including you know, well more than half of the Democratic members of, of Congress. Uh, two summers ago, uh, almost 400 of the 435 members of the House voted to condemn uh, the BDS movement. Um, so I think the fundamentals of support for the U.S.'s relationship are there on a bipartisan basis. Uh, I think for sure on the, uh, you call it the fringes, I would call it the edges. Um, there is uh, uh, There are loud folks and there is concern. Uh, I go back to Steny Hoyer, the House uh, Majority Leader's comments at APAC policy conference a few years ago, uh, where he said there aren't four freshmen, there's 64 freshmen uh, talking about uh, the squad and, and their influence and their impact. Um, I think that it is uh, it's certainly concerning, but I don't think it's the lead. I think it uh, is uh, is a paragraph or two down. I do believe that when there is a hot war, a hot conflict like the one we have now, uh, with the images that we're seeing on television uh, from Gaza, uh, that that certainly uh, exasperates uh, those tensions and causes, uh, I think the technical term is surus uh, as it relates uh, to uh, these issues. Uh, but it, uh, you know, I, I think the, the bottom line is that the leader of the Democratic Party is Joe Biden. Uh, and to date, Joe Biden has been uh, precisely where um, where the pro-Israel community in the United States would want him to be. And from all I can tell, where the government of Israel would want the United States to be. With the caveat perhaps being that at the same time, his negotiators are in Vienna negotiating massive sanctions relief for the Islamic Republic of Iran to subsidize the terrorism we see conducted against Israel. But I, uh, you don't, you could respond to that. You don't have to, but I would just point that out. You're switching ledgers on me, Rich. It's all one ledger in the Middle East. I, you know, I, I would, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll let Jared get me out of this, but I would, uh, um, I would say it's, it's definitely a consideration uh, that as the administration is standing firm for Israel and has Israel's back, that that will definitively be a talking point that the administration will use to assuage fears by the pro-Israel community and by Israel, should there be some sort of deal about the extent to which the United States will continue to have Israel's uh, back should the a, a new Iran deal go bad. I think that that is a, a definite consideration and something that's in the mix uh, to the extent that that has the Biden administration uh, standing stronger and firmer. I think that's a good thing. Uh, but as it relates to an Iran deal, you know, we, we cross that bridge and we come to it. We have expressed uh, concerns about uh, going right back into a JCPOA uh, 1.0. Um, but I think until uh, there is more there, uh, you know, at this point, uh, it remains it's a separate ledger. 
So, so William, I am going to change topics on you a little bit here. Um, but Rich, I'm sure we'll find a way to come back to the JCPOA uh, momentarily. But uh, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about veganism, Jared. You want to talk about uh, plant-based? Uh, the rockets raining down in Israel get paid by somebody from somewhere. That's all I'm saying. And, and you know, yeah. and, and Rich, yeah. I, Rich, I don't want to dismiss that. Uh, it is a fact that but for Iran, Hamas would not have the wherewithal to do what they do. Uh, and that absolutely should be front and center. I, I absolutely add that to the parade of horribles um, of Iran, period. We've been told for a long time, uh, the balance of a presidency, in fact, that the Trump administration kind of had this grand bargain and was was able to do, you know, to give them credit, what nobody else had been able to do for a long time in achieving peace between Israel and many of the Gulf, uh, many of the Arab states around it, and and start commercial ties and really begin to usher in what we all thought was going to be a era of prosperity. I guess my question is, what's the end game here for Israel? They're fighting this war with Hamas. Uh, you can already see cracks in the Abraham Accords starting to show up. Um, are they worth the, the paper they're written on? And uh, is, is this continuing conflict with the Palestinians and the inability to have any closure there going to compromise long-term peace that we all thought was on the way? Excellent uh, questions all. Uh, my sense is from, from talking to folks in the region and talking to folks in the Gulf and talking to folks here in Israel uh, who engage uh, with the Gulfies on a daily basis that what we're hearing from the Gulf is much more muted um, than what we would have heard uh, two years ago, um, that the few statements that have come out. I, I agree with that. But it, the question is, can conflict like this coexist with the accords and what they were supposed to produce? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the bottom lines of the accords was that not everything in the Middle East must run through Ramallah. Um, that uh, giving Abu Mazen uh, the power and authority uh, to dictate uh, those issues was not something that was productive towards peace, not something that was productive towards uh, any sort of regional harmony. Uh, I think that maintains today. Uh, I think uh, perhaps, you know, the extent to which the UAE, the Saudis, Bahrain, and others uh, have um, influence over Israeli action, um, maybe that's not a bad thing. Uh, to some extent, uh, they give a hexer, they make kosher, uh, Israel's uh, activities and actions. Uh, and my understanding is that they've been a productive player uh, over this last uh, 10 days of conflict. Um, I don't think that there were many of us who thought that um, it would be the end of the Palestinian conflict uh, or issues with Israeli Arabs and others because of the Abraham Accords. Uh, but I think it does set a, a, uh, a template um, and a uh, sort of a, a better view from 20,000 feet uh, of the possibilities here in the region, uh, despite um, uh, despite the road bumps and the, and clearly the, the critical issues um, that this conflict over the last ten days has uh, has brought to the fore. William, if I'm a listener at home anywhere in the United States, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm worried about family and friends in Israel. I'm worried about William in Israel right now. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm very worried about this conflict. I'm worried for Israel's safety. I am shaken by the social media feeds I'm seeing from people I was following last summer during Black Lives Matter, and I was very supportive, and now I'm getting whiplashed and, and seeing all kinds of anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian propaganda thrown my way. What, what can people do? do what's your message to the jewish community out there of the the three four things people can do to be proactive so they don't feel like they're just sitting around being victims 
Um, I think the first thing to do is to uh, uh, contact your member of Congress and your senators uh, and the White House uh, and let them know that you are a voter uh, and an activist and someone who uh, is supportive of a strong U.S.'s relationship and recognizes the importance of the ability for Israel to defend herself against uh, these terror attacks. Uh, That would be, I think, issue number one and something that we can all do to ensure that our members of Congress are in the right place and that the administration uh, stays focused uh, as they have over the last um, week plus of this conflict. Uh, I think secondly is to engage on social media as well. Uh, Everybody started out uh, with just one Twitter follower. Uh, My dog, uh, Miss Snuggles, uh, has, uh, I think, over 700 followers on Twitter. Uh, I opened an account for her to sort of show that anybody can get followers and even a a six pound Yorkshire Terrier. Feel free to follow her at Miss Snuggs. Uh, And so you can uh, tomorrow uh, get on Twitter, get on TikTok, get on Facebook uh, and express yourself uh, to your uh, universe of friends. Just looking on Facebook, uh, as I've been doing a bit over the last few days, there are real conversations going among uh, friends. The people who are our Facebook friends, you know, not from our uh, Jewish universe, uh, are people who see us as a reliable source of information and someone who is a friend. And, you know, if they're our barber or neighbor or, uh, you know, PTA president, uh, and not uh, engage in the pro-Israel world, uh, they need to hear from us and to, and to hear uh, our narrative as distinct from what they may be hearing on BBC or CNN or, or Al Jazeera uh, or reading uh, in the mainstream press. Um, so I think those are clear things they can do. And I think thirdly uh, is to uh, really express um, uh, unqualified support for a strong Israel. Uh, there are many, many issues here in Israel uh, that uh, that people are arguing about and disagree about. Uh, at Shabbat tables here and across the world, you'll hear uh, more criticism of the Israeli government uh, than you hear just about anywhere, including the Knesset. Uh, we all have issues that we work on, but right now is not the time to be piling on. Right now is the time to be hugging an Israeli, to be holding them in solidarity, to show that we Uh, In the diaspora, we in American Jewry understand the pain that they are going through, the fact that they are being attacked for one reason, and frankly, that one reason is because they're Jewish. That is something we need to stand arm in arm with our Israeli brothers and sisters so that they know that there is a wall of support, not just with the American government, with American Jewry uh, from left to right, from top to bottom. William, and you are a social media guru uh, in the Jewish community, long time acknowledged. I remember back in the day when you were the mayor of Foursquare uh, at the kosher restaurant in Washington, D.C. Yes, I remember that. This this dates us a little bit, but I'm sure there's The Williams Burger. Oh, yeah, there's there's a lot of it. But but, uh, we we do want to have at least one or two lighthearted questions while while we got you, our our traditional lightning round. Uh, And we always ask somebody what their favorite kosher food is or Jewish food or Israeli food. Yours might be more interesting. Uh, our listeners may or may not know you are a devout vegan, uh, and so we, we respect all uh, choices uh, of uh, veg- vegetables and, and veganism uh, here on the program. We're very inclusive. Uh, what what would be your favorite Jewish food or kosher food or Israeli food? You know, uh, I, I'm very tempted to go with uh, tofu, tempeh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, but um, I had today, uh, for the first time this trip, uh, falafel, 
uh, from a stand on the street on Diesengoff uh, with uh, with all the the, hap- the the toppings and French fries and the like, or chips as they call them here. Um, so I would say uh, right now I'm in a falafel uh, state of mind, and uh, I'm sure when we talk at the end of my trip, I, I will have had more falafel and hummus than I'll know what to do with. Uh, but right now I'll say uh, you know delicious uh, homemade uh, street street. Uh, Falafel. Okay, I have one last one for you, and you already brought up the word surus, so I don't think it could be that. But what's your favorite? Oh, that was going to be my word, Jared. That was going to be my word. No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. It I want to be your word. I want you word. to show. No, no. Let's look. Come on. He's what's the your second, second CEO, favorite? Yeah, what's word? your second favorite Yiddish word? Second, you know, I was going to go with surus. I use surus a lot. Um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, wasn't there someone who cursed on your podcast who used a, a, a naughty word at some point? I seem to remember that. We've had a lot of things happen on this podcast. You know, I guess uh, I, I, I guess I'd go with uh, with uh, Sadiq, uh, which is a uh, uh, an esteemed person, uh, someone who is sort of saintly, um, someone who is uh, engaged for the right reasons, someone who uh, really we can all look to. Uh, as an inspiration and as someone uh, who is a great role model. So I would say uh, uh, Sadiq is a name, uh, is a word that I love and uh, and one that we should uh, have more of and we should emulate. William Daroff, thank you so much for joining us. As it happens, uh, I do recall it was a member of Congress uh, who perhaps used some interesting language. William Daroff, the chief executive officer of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations on the ground in Israel, thank you for joining us. Great to great to be with you both, and I uh, look forward to seeing you uh, on the podcast and with Jewish Insider, my favorite daily Jewish publication. Thanks, William. Well, Jared, great to have William with us uh, live from Israel, uh, getting uh, his take there. A lot of issues to break down for the organized Jewish community. Let's turn, however, to Capitol Hill. We have a very special guest. Uh, we want to get her take uh, on these issues, but also others as well. Uh, Jared, why don't you introduce us? Delegate Stacy Plaskett is the non-voting member of Congress from the United States Virgin Islands, a dear friend of mine, and we're really uh, thankful to have her on the podcast to talk about lots going on today. Uh, why don't we start off with Delegate Plaskett, what is it like to be a non-voting member of Congress? Well, I think um, that's an interesting uh, way of putting it. Uh, I would say it's a limited voting, and the limited vote depends on who's in power, how much of that limit is there. So all uh, members of territories, or uh, as I would say, all members of the uh, American colonies, have a right uh, of voting in committees. And so we vote fully in committees. And when the Democrats uh, have control of the House, we vote on the floor on amendments and when we are on committee of the whole, we do not vote on final passage. When Republicans are in control, then there is no voting on the floor and we are relegated to the votes in committees and just doing the other business of members of Congress that is, um, you know, passing, uh, sponsoring legislation, co-sponsoring, debating, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things that I have just noted is interesting. I was talking to a group earlier today is that in this position, I feel like I am, it's the same as my life because I sit on the floor quite often and find myself being an observer rather than an actor. Um, And I think it gives me a greater sense of members and uh, strategy and thoughts about members than other 
uh, members of Congress have. Like, I can sit there and I know which member of New Jersey is going to vote first and which ones are waiting to see who another particular member votes ahead of them, which members of the front line are waiting for the last minute because they don't want to take the vote, are waiting to be whipped by the majority leader or the whip's team to ask them to vote a certain way. You know, it gives you a a much greater observation, um, but it also means that you've got to work harder because you don't have those votes to negotiate with, with other clients and with, uh, with other, you know, colleagues and with um, the leadership. And so you've got to really be creative and um, a hustler to get your delegate. You've, you've achieved quite a bit of notoriety for a delegate from a territory. You know, you don't, often hear a ton of news out of the, the territorial uh, delegations, but you're you're one of the House impeachment managers, you're on Ways and Means. Uh, you alluded to it a minute ago when you said you're a hustler. How is it to do advocacy as, as somebody who is sort of using all the instruments of soft power? It seems like you've mastered this, but I, I'd be interested to hear more about how that actually works uh, and how you make those deals. Well, soft power, huh? Soft power. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just have always felt that, uh, you know, I was raised in a house where my mother explained to me that you've got to be better than everybody else. You've got to have more hustle than everybody. I'm putting you in the same um, places where people have much more resources than you. And you've got to figure out a way to come out on top. I don't want you to come home in the middle or average or at the bottom. You've got to be on top. And so that's always just kind of given me a drive. I came here knowing that I was going to make this position very different than the position had been previously. Uh, I wanted to be outside of the box of what was expected. Uh, I asked not to be put on the same committees that the other territorial members had been placed on uh, because I wanted to forge a very different path. And interestingly, you know, I think what I'm doing is so much about what we as Caribbean people do in America uh, from, you know, the first Caribbean people who came uh, to this country and offered support at its formation is we have always kind of had a chip on our shoulder and felt that we have more to prove, you know, from our boy Alexander Hamilton right on through to today. We have to step outside of the box Um, People are looking at us a little askew. And so we've got to prove ourselves. And, um, you know, that's the only way I feel that my constituents who are often completely underserved, forgotten and behind the eight ball are going to get ahead. So when you look at other territories that have, you know, taken the step to have referendums to say, you know, do you want to be a state, not just a territory? Um, Puerto Rico obviously comes top of mind. We had the referendum uh, last fall uh, with with the yes succeeding narrowly. the last referendum I can think about for Virgin Islands is probably over 20 years ago. Maybe there is one more recent. Uh, has that something that's come up? Has anybody thought about doing that? Uh, where do you sort of stand on that idea of, of, of statehood for Virgin Islands? So we just recently had a referendum um, that we would adopt the Congressional Organic Act as our constitution so that we can amend that. That passed overwhelmingly. And um, for the last two and a half years, I've been petitioning our local government, um, our local legislature and our governor 
asking them if they would allocate a really small amount of money to educate Virgin Islanders on what the different status options are and the pros and cons of each one. You know, what does it really mean financially and economically to be independent? What does it mean to be a state in terms of the politics of that or uh, to be a commonwealth or, you know, any of the other um, possibilities that are there? Not so that people are just getting that off of the internet or off of somebody on a talk show, but really having a true understanding about each one of those and what that means. And then for us to have a referendum on it um, in the next two years, two years from now, we will be 175 years from our emancipation from chattel slavery. And I believe that that's a prime time for us to, as a people, say internally, this is what I want us to be. You know, I can have my own ideas about where we should be, but that is not necessarily the will of the people. And I think that that's what should drive the decision-making. And then, you know, my final thought to them was that whatever that outcome is of that referendum, that should be the position that whomever represents us in Washington at that time, as well as the governor and the local government, should be pushing for. To ask you a question, a little bit closer to home for me, at least, you know, I'm one of those Mm -hmm. obnoxious people who thinks the world ends at the Hudson River. Um, So you did spend quite a bit of time growing up in New York City in the five boroughs Uh and uh, between there and St. Croix. We've talked a lot on the show about the relationship between the far left uh, and anti-Semitism. And how some, you know, have tried to take the imprenur of the Black Lives Matter movement and stretch it beyond its breaking point into something that it's not particularly related to the Israel-Palestinian conflict. About the far right's anti-Semitism? I talk about the far right's anti-Semitism so all, the time. So so, uh, all the time. Um, right. and, but, but I guess, what is your take on the state of black Jewish relations generally as, a, mm-hmm. as a, somebody who spent a lot of time in New York uh, mm-hmm. and as an observer and a thoughtful person about this? Uh, is it yeah. getting better? Is it getting worse? What, and what can we be doing to, to build that relationship? You know, as people like Rich and I who have a big bully pulpit in the Jewish community, uh, knock on wood, uh, what, what should we be talking about? That's an interesting question. You know, I grew up um, between Bushwick and Williamsburg, you know, so you're getting different groups of the Jewish community, some which actually don't even get along with each other, right? Uh, and then moving home to the Virgin Islands, which is a very interesting place because we have one of the oldest continually running synagogues in the Western Hemisphere, um, started by Sephardic Jewish community. And then we also have a very sizable Palestinian Jordanian community as well in, in the Virgin Islands. And they both coexist very, um, very well together. Uh, and so we're, what is the position that I have taken on that as an African person of African descent, as someone who lives in America, an African-American, an Afro-Caribbean person? You know, I do think there are different groups of Jewish and Black communities think very differently about this, right? Uh, I think back on the protests this past summer 
And there were Jewish people who were out there um, repping the fact that they were Jewish and supporting uh, that Black lives do matter, right? And so when you say the term Black lives matter, are you talking about an organization or a theory? Um, And for me, it's a theory that, yes, our lives matter. And that's what we're trying to get across, um, that until Black lives matter, then all lives don't matter. And there were Jewish people, you know, Amish people who supported that. Um, But there's also, I think, uh, a dichotomy and a belief that I brush up against and that worries me that my Jewish brothers and sisters think that if I um, support the existence of Palestine, that that means that I don't support them as Jewish people. Um, And so that's worrisome to me. Like, how do you navigate that? How do I um, believe that there should be a two-state solution? That what is happening on both ends are problematic? Um, That there should be a ceasefire? That we need to have peace? Um, and not feel like I am being uh, saying that one side is better or the other side is not. Like, you know, I'm a supporter of the Jewish state, but I do not believe that um, Netanyahu is necessarily the best leader of the Jewish state at this time. I believe in a Palestinian state, but I condemn Hamas, right? So does one cancel out the other? I'm not sure. And and that's for me to ask uh, my brothers and sisters who are Jewish and that are of Palestinian descent um, to educate me and to help me figure that out. In the same way that I ask, you know, my white friends, uh, I'm happy when they want to be educated and want to be thoughtful about their position on black people in America. Yeah, I think, and I've contemplated this in the last few days, and we've had lots of conversations. My synagogue was very active, like you talked about in, you know, we're in the middle of COVID lockdowns and, you know, we saw what happened with George Floyd and the and the protest movement started and people were very moved to go out to the streets and join um, and show their support. And, you know, they're connected now to a lot of feeds, a lot of influencers, a lot of movements, networks, social organizations that they got involved with from last summer. And they just, I think, assumed, okay, you know, we're in solidarity here. And now with rockets raining down on Israel, we're seeing real venom from some of these social media feeds, from some of these social organizations of comparing people who support Israel to white supremacists uh, and Nazis. And the language, um, you know, as I think Jared was referring to, the language of anti-racism theory being hijacked for a different agenda, Um and I think that's what worries a lot of people uh, is, is to see that kind of language, which then moves from what you're talking about, which is, I don't agree with this selected government. I support the right of a Jewish state to exist, obviously, in safety and security. I don't like Netanyahu to there's a fundamental hostility in some of these messaging of the idea of a Jewish state that defends itself. 
I think um, you'll find, I, I hear what you're saying. I think also for a lot of black people, we're concerned because we also see Palestinians as brown people in some respects. And so that in some ways makes us feel that we have an obligation um, to use our platform to maybe speak for a group that does not have the same platform as we do. Um, And while, you know, I, I had a discussion on the floor, like, well, you know, not every Jewish person is white. Um, the general consensus or cultural um, message that has been put to African-Americans is that Palestinians more likely represent the type of oppression that Black Americans have had or Native Americans have had. It's similar um, as opposed to what, uh, you know, a Jewish state created by the predominantly Ashkenazi European Jews. It's so, it's so stunning to me because I, I reflect, and by the way, thank you for this conversation. This is, this is such an important conversation that we haven't had. Uh, I remember as a kid at the Passover Seder uh, and, and the comparisons of the civil rights movement to the Passover story and that being one of the major connection points for black Jewish relations. Uh, and we remember, you know, the, the Jewish leaders who, who were out there in the streets, you know, side by side with civil rights leaders at the time. Uh, and, and that sort of imagery, that song, you know, the black Moses, right? Like there's a lot of these sort of things we talk about with where, where we bring that, that comparison together and yet it's it's evolved over the last few decades. It really has into more of what you're saying, where I think that the early Jewish state had that sort of feeling of camaraderie, and somehow we've evolved into this narrative, which has shifted, even though, to your point, you know, Israel rescued Ethiopian Jews and integrated Ethiopian Jews into Israel, the Mizrahi Jews, you know, from all around North Africa and the Middle East, um, I don't know how we. I don't know how we fight back that narrative. I don't know. Yeah, you know, and I would. I would just observe. You know, the uh, the person who in this world taught me the most about the meaning of Passover was not a rabbi or a Hebrew school teacher. It was Barack Obama when he pulled out a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation at the conclusion of the Seder and and sat in his home and made us read from the Emancipation Proclamation to really understand the American nature of the holiday. But you know. It's uh, rich. I think it's it's the first step is having conversations like this, right? Uh, that are slightly uncomfortable but very real, and and confronting the issues. And this is how I've gotten to know the delegate and sort of my 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 uh, my day job. It's not to shy not to shy away from the uncomfortable conversation. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, you know, uh, for a lot of um, my colleagues when we're having the discussion, you know, they bring up uh, and help me with the pronunciation, the Nakba, right? They talk about the displacement of the Palestinians um, as a major inflection point um, in their shift in attitude. And um, I I don't know what you guys think of that. Um, can Can we come, can we recognize a point when that has changed which could maybe be instructive to us about how to reevaluate that relationship. 
Yeah, the the Nakba is a troubling term for me at least because mm-hmm. it, the, the reference historically is to the creation of the state of Israel. And so if somebody says, you know, we we were triggered by the Nakba, or you know, we have to we have to respond to the Nakba, to me, and again, maybe maybe it's becoming sort of general terminology that's just being used without knowing the 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 etymology. To me, that like represents we have a problem that the Jewish state was created in 1948 and, and in its root there, you know, to us again, as Jews, that can be sounding like anti-Semitism of, well, you, you don't even, you don't even believe that that Jews have a right to exist as a Jewish state. Fundamentally, that's a problem. But I, I, I guess I, the question is, you know, where, where do you, where can we go as a community to have these sort of dialogues, you know, whether it's closed door, you know, if it's with the Black Caucus, if it's if it's with individual members, um, it, it sounds like we either it's Israel's problem as as a government, and obviously I'm not here to advise the Israeli government, but as an American Jewish community, I feel like we need to be doing more to bring some you know modern education to members and information of here is the diversity that exists in israeli society and by the way here's the lack of diversity that exists in the palestinian territories no lgbtq rights flourishing lgbtq rights in israel no women's rights in the palestinian territories flourishing women's rights in israel i think there's a great progressive message here it's just it's just getting lost somehow yeah you're assuming that all black people are progressive no, I, I, I'm not saying that. I, 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 I trust me, as a Republican, I, I welcome uh, uh, as many conservative <laughs> places of the party. Trust me. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure that members, particularly Black Caucus members, are happy to have those conversations. I think what um, some of them may feel is that they're not conversations; they're being told. Um, what they are supposed to think or supposed to do. And, you know, um, numbers and resources are being utilized as bludgeons to make them think they have to take a certain position. Well, I think, you know, Rich, we should, you know, use use our bully pulpit, right, to help advise the Jewish community as they engage with progressive Mm -hmm. members, black and white, and and any color. Uh, talk about, to some of us moderate members too. I'm not. A that's right. <laughs> Can I ask a uh, house politics question? Because we have a member of Congress on, and I just i I got to ask you: uh, Did did McCarthy just sign a blood oath with President Trump? But when he ousted Liz Cheney, and are the Cheneys going to have their revenge? Like, how is this going to play out? I, I you know, I, it's shocking to me that you know. This, this all played out the way it is. It did, but uh, what, what's your take on it? By the way, Chicago, Chicagoans are very like when you say blood oath, we can only think of the untouchables because that that's, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's where I go. So. Uh, you know, I don't I don't have an opinion on the Liz Cheney portion as much. I mean, I understand her removal because she isn't following the message of leadership, um, and it's very clear what the message is right now of the House Republicans. I'm not saying all Republicans, but the House Republicans. And um, her um, inability to agree with them about what happened on January 6th 
is a reason for her not to be in leadership. What I find more shocking is today, as we are about to vote on this commission, is that, you know, he's now, McCarthy is now putting another member out to dry because he had uh, John Katko, who was the ranking member, um, the Republican on Homeland Security, negotiate for several months now what this commission is supposed to look like. And um, he was able to get the concessions that McCarthy wanted, only now for McCarthy to turn around and say, I'm not going to support it, which, of course, he can't support it because the leader of his party, which is still Donald Trump, has said he doesn't want to support it. Um, And so, uh, you know, I allow them, let them continue to have that battle. Um, We've got our own issues on our side of the aisle. We've got, um, you know, the far left um, going after moderate, thoughtful members, um, making people take the plank on issues that, in some instances, is going to cost them their seat. Um, So those are the things that I'm concerned about on my own side of the aisle. And, you know, keeping my head on a swivel to make sure that uh, some of the wackadoodles on that side, on the other side, um, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and um, Boebert and some of the others, recognize that they can't step to everybody. Uh, they think they can talk crap to. I'll, I'll keep it. We have to stay clean on this. Uh, not, not, a, not in Yiddish. You're allowed to swear yeah, in yeah, Yiddish. Yeah, you're allowed to curse in Yiddish. Actually, we've had members yeah. of Congress do that before. Uh, so I actually have a follow-up. You've said a couple times, you know, you're a moderate. We know you were formerly a member of the Republican Party, uh, an appointee, mm-hmm. a Republican appointee in a previous administration. Uh, you know, when you look at that state of polarization right now on both sides, mm-hmm. um, it is is there a middle that exists that you're a part of that you're talking to other members? You're doing bipartisan things that just we're just not watching because it's not good television, or is it very much stressed even on that level? It's stressed, but there's some going on, um, but it's not interesting. You know, it doesn't make the news. Um, I am in leadership with the new Democratic Coalition, which are the pragmatic, you know, moderate Democrats. And we just had a press conference on legislation, you know, a series of legislation that we've been working on with Republicans that we're hoping the president will put in his jobs plan, you know, on his infrastructure bill. But I'm sure CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC are not going to put that on the air. But even within that, Richard, it is extremely, um, there's a heightened tension here in Congress. Every day on the floor, um, you can feel the tension. Uh, You know, previous years, I would have stepped in an elevator with any member of Congress and said, good afternoon, you know, what's going on? How's your family? There are some some members I won't even get in the elevator with uh, at this point. I'm just, I just don't want to share any space with them. So to that end, Delegate, can you tell us about your experience uh, on January 6th? Tell us where you were and how that all went down for you. Yeah, I mean, I do not have the same trauma that some of my other colleagues have. Um, I was in my office 
was about to go to the floor, had actually just put on my suit jacket and was walking out of the office when I was stopped at the front by one of my staffers and told, they just told us to lock the door and you can't leave um, the office. And so it's interesting because I look at the levels of trauma that I actually, real trauma that I see in some of the members uh, and the ones who were up on that balcony with, who for 45 minutes could not leave, which are only Democrats and members of the press were up in the balcony area. Uh, they, they have their own support group counseling for some of them that they're going through. Uh, you know, I kind of watched from television uh, went down into the area that was sent down to the holding area where all the members were at, at a later point and um, eventually went back to my office. So, but seeing, you know, that evening, seeing what the Capitol looked like, you know, the windows knocked out, um, feces on the walls in the Capitol, um, it was horrendous. It was a shock, really a shock. To uh, brighten things up a little bit, <laughs> tell us about the, the Jewish community on St. Thomas. I bet you many, if not most of our listeners don't know about that. I know when I first visited the Virgin Islands for the first time, it, it sort of took me by surprise. But uh, tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll go to the lightning round. And uh, I promise Rich will be very nice. Okay. Well, you know, the Virgin Islands um, is a place that has enormously rich culture. Uh, we've been owned by seven different nations over time, from Denmark, which was the longest uh, sovereign flag over us, to even the Knights of Malta, right? And uh, people came to the Virgin Islands because of our geographic location, our rich agricultural land on St. Croix, and on St. Thomas, it was an incredibly vibrant harbor and port where goods and services and everything were, um, you know, were traded. It's been the home to Bluebeard, Redbeard, Blackbeard. You know, if pirates want to live there, you know it's got to be the happening place, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. It's also the Danish government was very keen on creating religious tolerance uh, in the Virgin Islands, they thought it was good for business. And so we have a really large Catholic community and also a really large and one of the oldest Jewish communities in the Western Hemisphere um, and have a synagogue that is absolutely stunning on St. Thomas that was started by um, Sephardic uh, community, Sephardic Jews. And, you know, we have Many people think the sand there is because where the ground is covered in sand in the synagogue, and many people think it's because of oh, the beach. Um, but really, it's because the Jews wanted to remember their need to muffle the sound of them praying during the Inquisition in Spain. Um, so just a really tremendously rich culture. Um, Jared, uh, are you going to have um, is Jake going to have his bar mitzvah 
at the synagogue in St. Thomas. It is. It is entirely up for consideration. Uh, and are, it's been and are, we all, are we all being invited? You, you're all invited. Rich, I will tell you, if you never visited the, the synagogue in the in St. Thomas, first of all, like any good Jewish community, it has two different rabbis from two denominations who actually get along. Um, so Rabbi Fetterman and Rabbi Fishback, if you're listening, uh, we love you both. But the, the synagogue, the Hebrew congregation of St. Thomas is is really a stunning a stunning place and and uh you know all those uh passing through the virgin islands really should should take some time out and, and take a look at it so delegate we're we like we have a tradition on our show uh we like to ask our guests a, a couple of lightning round questions Uh-oh. to kind of humanize them a little bit um all right. uh good. so 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 the first one I, i'm gonna go with um you know I, I don't know if you saw but the new york times just like finally found out about a Caribbean delicacy this week, right? They ran a, a, a story about f- fungi and fungi. how... Fungi? Yeah, fungi. Fungi, sorry. I'm going to get killed on St. Croix for saying it like that. Uh-huh. But they, uh-huh. they, the, you know, the New York Times finally found out about it, and it's like it's been there all the, all the time. But I wondered if you had a favorite uh, Jewish or Israeli food. <laughs> Growing up a large part in New York, I'm sure you were exposed to lots of it, but uh, any any particular favorite Jewish or Israeli food? Oh my God. I, it's like so many, right? Um, so once I moved to the Virgin Islands and became acquainted with the older community there, you know, I was introduced to some of the Sephardic dishes of couscous and some of the others. But before that, growing up in New York, I've got like a whole list, right? Uh, from Kugel to gefilte fish. I actually like gefilte fish. Most Jews uh, don't even like gefilte fish. I know. I, I, I do. Not- my wife won't allow it in the, in the house. <laughs> I, my dad, my, and so my dad was a New York City cop for 30 years. So he knows every deli, every great restaurant uh, in the city. And his the thing between the two of us was he would always bring me hamantaschen, and he was also big on whitefish salad. Like, who has the best whitefish salad um, for my spread? That was also a big thing. But, you know, I am a big Kanish person, and when I was in the Bronx DA's office on the Grand Concourse, they had the best matzo ball soup, um, the deli there. And so that was also another biggie for me. So if so if if this whole Congress thing doesn't work out, you could just do a Jewish deli. I mean, yeah, yeah, like we, you're, like you're ready. A Jewish Caribbean deli. Yeah, perfect. Yes, Jared. Yes. Jared, how have you not done this already? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rich, you, you got one more uh, lightning okay, round question I do, for the delegate. I do, I okay, do. S- similar question. Uh, any Yiddish words that you picked up uh, in your time uh, in New York or in the Congress, uh, and that you really like? Oh, well, you know, so many of those words are just part of our regular speech. Um, But my kids know that the word that I use, overuse with them, is kvetching. Oh, I mean, that's that's a good good one. one. And that's That's what every parent. First time. First time we've had that, I think. That's that's good. Really? Yeah. I I can't stand kvetching. Just cut it out. Me too. Stop your whining. Right? Now, you know, kvetching could also be used as a noun. So my mother would say, like, don't be such a kvetch, Jared. Really? Oh, yeah. Somebody who kvetches too much is a kvetch. Rich, I don't know if that's the way it was no, in that, your that, No, that is correct. That is correct. That, okay. that is a proper yeah. usage. 
And so I will I will be using that with my sons. Oh, well, there you go. Delegate Stacey Plaskett from the Virgin Islands, thank you so much for joining us. Hope to see you back again soon. Thank you. Well, Rich, that was a very real conversation, uh, talking about where the pro-Israel community sits vis-a-vis the black community in this country. And, and we thank the delegate for coming on and having a real and, and it's sometimes uncomfortable conversation about, about where we are right now. Well, I will say that's what the show is for, right? The noise of social media is dangerous. We heard William talk about that, that a lot of what we see is social media, but it's also real. It's beneath social media. It, it's what people are talking about behind closed doors, even on Capitol Hill. These are tough conversations, but we have to have them. And it also is very educational, I think, to the organized Jewish community to understand there is a huge education deficiency that needs to be resolved. There's a lot of work cut out for us in dialogue, communication, education, and we're going to have to figure out how to do that because... You know, we can't go through conflicts where Israel's under attack and people no longer view Israel as a flourishing democracy that it is, that people really do view Israel as an oppressor. Uh, If that's taking hold in a mainstream way, it needs to be addressed. Indeed, indeed. And as we did last week, we'll do it again, uh, thinking of all those who've lost life on all sides of this conflict and and praying for shalom, for peace in the days ahead uh, soon. If you have any comments, questions, show ideas, tips, send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at J.I. Podcast. If we're on the clubhouse, hope to see you there. And remember to follow and subscribe to the Limited Liability Podcast on your podcast listening medium of choice. Until next time, this is the Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah. yeah.